So welcome to another special episode of the Privileged Man podcast with Damien Hopley, MBE, a former rugby union star for London Wasps and England. Damien, or Hoppers as he's widely known, excelled in rugby from a young age, representing his schools of St. Benedict's and Harrow before moving on to St. Andrews and Cambridge, where he studied theology, hence later on being nicknamed in the press as the Vicar of Rugby. A versatile player, Damien's career was on the rise until injuries forced an early retirement at just 26. But his impact on the sport didn't end there. In 1998, he founded the Rugby Players Association, advocating for the welfare of professional rugby players in England, a contribution that earned him an MBE. Damien's intimate view on the world of rugby today is fascinating. But much more than that, I found Damien's honesty about his own experiences vulnerable and courageous and a brilliant example for all men to follow, as you will particularly find towards the end of this podcast. As ever, if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe, give us five stars, leave a review if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, and share episodes with your friends and family. The more the podcast is listened to, the bigger the impact. Now, on to the main event. Okay, so Damien, welcome to the Privileged Man podcast. It's great to have you here. Thanks, Pete. Good to be here. I'm going to take us straight back into maybe a fairly dark time for you, but it was 1996. You're a Cambridge graduate. You've got three England caps. You're poised to become England's answer to Jonah Lomi. And things come a bit crashing down. What happened? So I played a lot of sevens. That was sort of one of the things I did. I was very fortunate to be part of the inaugural World Cup winning team in 1993 in Edinburgh. In fact, we had a 30-year reunion just a few months ago, uh, hosted by our illustrious captain, Andy Harriman, who should get some sort of gong, given that he lifted the Melrose Cup in 1993. And Andy was then the manager of the England Sevens team. And I was sort of really keen to sort of get Sevens going, having sort of, I guess, having got, got to the heights we did. So I was captaining the Sevens team. We went out to Hong Kong. And we were playing against Scotland. I mean, it's funny. I remember like it was yesterday. We were playing against Scotland. Gregor Townsend went to step me. I went to tackle him and my knee just collapsed underneath me. And I remember just trying to sort of get up off the pitch to go after him. And my leg just sort of stayed there motionless. There was this almighty popping sound, which I subsequently found out is quite regular when you snap your ACL. And my leg was just sort of hanging there. And I realized... Uh, all was not well. So they came on a sort of Popemobile, got me off the pitch down. Anyone who's been to the Hong Kong Stadium, you know, the sort of tunnels down into the bowels of the stadium. Paul Jackson was the doctor. He put a, a sort of horse syringe needle into my knee and said, if I draw blood out, you know, this isn't great. And um, anyway, my, my knee was literally spasming so hard he could barely get the needle in. He then pulls the, the syringe and out comes thick red blood. He said, I'm really sorry to say, I think this is quite a serious injury. And then this sort of different stage of my life started to sort of either unravel or come together, however you want to see it. But that was really the beginning of a different journey in rugby for me. How did you feel when he told you that? Did you feel my career's over or did you feel like, or were you sort of in a sense of slight denial about it and be like, eh, everything will be fine? I think yes, I was 25, I guess, when that happened. So you're sort of thinking, well, you know, it's an injury. I'm, I'll bounce back up. I've always bounced back up. I had quite an injury-laden career anyway. I, I was sort of, when I first started playing for WASP, I was studying at St. Andrews University. I use the term loosely. 
But I'd be flying back and forth every weekend to play for Wasps. And, and that's really how my I sort of got back into the limelight because a lot of my age group, England school's age group, so the likes of Martin Johnson, who I'm sure many people have heard of, Adedeo Adebayo, Steve Ajomo, John Mallet, a lot of these guys were starting to play club rugby. And whilst I'd had two very enjoyable years at St Andrews Uni, playing against the Howard Fife and Madras former pupils getting my head kicked in, I thought I should probably sort of crack on. So that summer I trained very hard with Wasp, got into it and had gone extraordinarily well in my debut against Will Carling, just wiped him off the pitch. Much to everyone on the pitch is delight, Wasp and Harlequins, I hasten to add. And then Wasp started flying me down every week to play. So, which sounded quite glamorous, but actually I think one of the challenges I had was I wasn't really battle hardened. So I got a lot of soft tissue injuries when I was younger. And then, so, you know, fast forward to the aftermath of Hong Kong, I just thought, well, I'll, you know, I'll be okay. I'll bounce back. I know I need an operation. And so it all began. Yeah. So it's sort of, it was an extraordinary time because you're sort of at this peak of captaining the national sevens team. You're in full England cap. You know, you're sort of, as you said in the intro, hoping to sort of move on to bigger and better things, having been around that environment for about five years. And then you're sort of plunged into this abyss of thinking, okay, well, what now? Yeah, that was that. And how were you treated by the general camp with this? Obviously, we're coming into the professional-ish era. Yeah. Was anyone there to catch you and go, this is what you need to do and this is we're going to look after you? No, I, in fact, the treatment by the RFU was nothing short of appalling. I just sort of got left my own devices. And I think that's what probably lit the fire that's probably still in me around how players should be treated and looked after. So it was Paul Jackson, the, the doctor I mentioned, who sort of suggested I go and see, but there was no one saying, right, you need to go and see this doctor. We've set you up with this consultant, um, orthopedic knee surgeon. I was just doing it all on my own. And uh, I remember I was driving up to sort of Northwick Park Hospital, driving into the Wellington in London. Eventually I drove out to Droitwich to see a doctor there and had my first surgery, which was pretty much unsuccessful. He decided that he wouldn't repair the, the torn ACL, but just said, just keep training on it. You know, you should be okay. You should sort of come back. And so I worked on getting what I can describe as sort of Samoan thighs for the next sort of six to nine months. Got back training with was first tackle Joe Worsley put on. I mean, my knee went again. Having spent all that time trying to sort of deal with the sort of mental, physical piece, so then they said, okay, we're going to repair it now. So then obviously I went to a different doctor that, again, I recruited, um, researched, Paul Acroft up at the Wellington Knee Clinic. It was fantastic. And and I think throughout all this time, you're always sort of looking back and thinking, oh God, what if I'd done that? Or what if, and obviously you, you transpose that into nowadays. And as soon as you get an injury, you'd go to the Fortieth Clinic in Fitzharding Street and you'd see one of five knee surgeons, all of whom are world-class and there'd be a whole process, but I was sort of there like battling on my own. And then sort of coming to terms with the fact that, hey, I'm not sure I will be okay. So I, I had another reconstruction, came back again nine months later and got injured again. And uh, at that point, Mr. Acroft, the, the surgeon, just said, look, if I were you, I'd probably knock it on the head. And I think my head had sort of been moving in that direction anyway, because I wasn't the player I was. I was quite a sort of physical player and I just would go into contact probably at 50% because I'd be sort of guarding my knee. I'd wear all sorts of apparatus around the knee that made me look like Wurzel Gummidge. I mean, it was just, you know, there was so much strapping on there. So I think psychologically, 
I'm sure we'll come on to that. That was probably the hardest bit because you're sort of physically I was okay, but I think psychologically the the challenge of going back into that environment again and thinking, oh God, I'm going to do it again. And I'm not sure I've got another year's worth of rehab left in me and all of the struggles that come with that. And so then, yeah, the sort of decision was made for me. And then you sort of got to start rebuilding your life. And it's, I guess, something that then grew into an extraordinary couple of decades for me. Yeah, very interesting. I mean, I can't say that it stopped my England career, but I snapped my ACL skiing. Yeah. And yeah. also and then went back into rehab and I was living in Bali at the time and uh, lots of people were saying, yeah, just don't get the surgery, just strengthen it. And obviously I wasn't going into contact sports. So I, again, I can understand that the yeah. Samoan thighs, I went into proper, I mean, squat, the, the squat era, I could call it. <laughs> the amount of squats I did per week, wow. Yeah. But yeah, I don't really empathise and also understand that that sound of the pop. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah. quite not something and, you hear every day. It's really funny because when you, like most experiences in life, when you've done something and then you meet so many people like yourself or I remember going around, we did a sort of procession at Hong Kong after I was injured and, and obviously I was just in my, um, I was in said sort of Pope Mobile, you know, waving at people and the number of people who were, if anyone's been to Hong Kong, know the South Stand is this sort of absolute danger zone. Um, but the number of people there were just saying, oh, I did my knee skiing, I did my knee this, you know, I hope you're okay. And it was really, I think what really struck me was when I knew that, I never officially retired, so I'm going to use this podcast to say, I will not be coming back for England at the 27 World Cup, despite the lack of a crash ball inside centre that perhaps we needed. Um, Massive scoop. But yeah. Big scoop Here for we the go. Privileged uh, Man podcast. Uh, <laughs> But I never sort of formally retired, but I just knew that, that that my time was up. And then you just go through this extraordinary reframe, reset, who am I, what am I, self-esteem, all of the things that you know, you've talked about a lot on this podcast and trying to sort of just come to terms with the fact that you're not the person you were six months ago and work through that. You know, it's still a work in progress 25 years on probably more but um but you know you're still just trying to sort of process and come to terms with what was there and attainable and i'd enjoyed you know i'd been at the world cup in 95 with england largely holding tackle shields still had a great time was around the game when it was going professional because that was a year that south african New Zealand, australia signed with murdoch and obviously the rfu in their wisdom decided not to offer central contracts and have been regretting it ever since when the club owners have come in but yeah so just trying to sort of come to terms with all of that, particularly as a young man and probably quite an immature young man at that point. It was a hell of a shock to the system. The evolution of the RPA and how you founded that, was that out of a sort of an, a sense of anger with the way in which you had been treated? 100%. I mean, it was driven purely by... It's quite funny. I think if you said to any player, it, probably even from the 1940s, 30s, 20s, What's your view of the RFU? To modern day, it would all be very unflattering. There are, and I'm not talking about the RFU now, but I just think there's always been this sort of standoff. And I was around when Will Carling famously talked about the 57 old farts. He had the England captaincy stripped from him. All the other players said, well, we won't be captain if Will isn't captain. I did secretly put my hat in the ring, but no one took me up. Sorry, upset. But there's always been this sort of us and them scenario. But I was so just angry about how the, the lack of empathy they showed. And, and actually there were several instances after me that were even worse. 
But yeah, how you can sort of be the national captain one day and then just forgotten about the next. So that drove a lot of my passion around setting up the Players Association. It actually came about, I was reading sponsorship news as was, like it was like a pamphlet both in those days. And I saw this ask about the Professional Cricketers Association. I called up this chap called Richard Bevan, who was the chief executive of the Professional Cricketers Association. And he said, can you play golf? I said, I'm terrible as my brother exposed on the last Privileged Man podcast, which is fair of setting, as well as my lack of pace. He said, throw your clubs in the car. We've got a golf day tomorrow up at um, Hawkston Park in Shropshire. Come up. So I said, no worries. So I did, jumped in, got up there, met him. And Richard has become a great mentor and a great friend of mine. He's now the chief executive of the League Managers Association of Football, was quite rightly awarded an OBE for his services to sport earlier this year. Went up there, looked at it, and I thought, my God, this is exceptional what they're doing they've been going for 30 odd years at that point this is exceptional what they're doing this is something that should be we should do and do you know what i'm the guy who can do it so we had zero money i didn't get paid a wage for two and a half years setting up the, the players association we had player subscriptions that all went on insurance programs legal insurance playing insurance for, for the players so there had to be a hook right you've got to Rugby players are always cynical. Well, athletes are cynical. Rugby players are double cynical. So you sort of, someone would say, they're only paying £100 a year. And I was like, yeah, try getting a tenner out of a rugby player and you're doing pretty well. So we had to give them something for it. So it was legal expenses, playing insurance. And it was me out of my front room in Fulham in 1998. And we sort of grew a bit over that time. But it was only really in 2000 that we actually started to get investment into all of our programs and the RFU and the clubs. And sort of grew the business from there. So it was a real passion project. But I also said, and I've said this to a lot of players subsequently, when you leave the game, players are very well paid now, relatively well rewarded. The top end especially well rewarded, middle, lower, less so, and, and increasingly less so. But your time is your most valuable commodity and currency. So give your time up and go and work for people and don't just get paid an awful lot of money, but just do something. And if you work out, you like what you're doing, that's going to set you up. If you work out you don't like what you're doing, that's a great thing to move on from. So I, I did two and a half years. My first ever colleague who sadly passed away from lymphoma a few years back, Simon Pilkington, we worked together up in a uh, free office space that was given us by the Rugby Club of St. James. And yeah, it's fair to say we didn't really know what we were doing, but the PCA were there to sort of as a model. And in the first year, that the Players Association was set up. Three clubs went bust. So West Hartlepool, I think Richmond, London Scottish, not necessarily in that order, Coventry. There were just clubs were falling left, right and centre. So all we could do is turn up and give some legal advice to the players. Hey, these are your rights. Unfortunately, in Blackheath are another one. Unfortunately, we can't do much more because A, we don't have the resource, but also, yeah, these are just badly run clubs or there isn't enough money in the game ironic that we've had the, the season we've just had with three premiership clubs going bust but yeah so you had that Lawrence Delalio famously got stung by the news of the world for I think Golden Wonder or I think it was Gillette maybe and so we helped him with his legal costs so suddenly and you never want it that way but suddenly you go okay we're onto something here actually this is really necessary Was that a moment when you went this is succeeding is there a moment when you went this is succeeding I think Every time you, it was probably a bit like playing a game. Every time you got a bit of a, a rabbit punch in on someone or a good, you know, a tackle or you made a point that was well received and that 
and, and the world change. You go, yeah, this is why it's really important to have collective representation. And in those days, it was like the Wild West. I mean, it really was. And players were offered salaries of six figures plus. The next season, they'd be offered half that and they'd accept it because it was just finger in the air sort of it was a comedy almost of how badly run the sport was. And, and I'm candidly, I'd say it probably hasn't improved a great deal. And I think rugby still has a lot of significant sort of structural governance issues that it has never really addressed. But I think it's credit to everyone who's worked in the game that we've got away with it for so long because we work well together and there's been a great sense of collaboration. I think that's changed a lot as well, but that's probably another point. But yeah, so, so back in the day, there were some key points where you start to think, okay, this is actually making a lot of sense. The players understand why collective representation is important. Players understand that, hey, they're going to have to do something when they finish the game because they're not going to earn enough when they're playing. So the whole personal development, player development piece start to really take off. And then unfortunately, you had a number of significant injuries, like life-changing injuries. I think for me, the one guy, in fact, we got our gongs at the same time, which was very special to me young man called Matt Hampson, who suffered a, a life-changing injury, spinal dislocation. I think it was 2007, And Matt has done extraordinary things with his life. And uh, there's a great book that was written by Paul Kimmage in conjunction with Matt called Engage. And Engage was the last word that Matt heard before he went down as a prop in an England under-21 training session to scrummage and had this life-changing injury. Tony Spreadbury was a referee at the time who was qualified ambulanceman, medic, I'm going to say, saved Matt's life. They got him off. And since that point, Matt has done incredible things as a sort of a role model in that space, raising money, raising awareness. Conversely, we were dealing a lot with Matt's parents, Anne and Phil at the time. And obviously Matt was just trying to get better. And the RFU could not have been less helpful. And if you read his book, they actually just published some of the emails that the RFU sent. And they were like, well, you know, if we give you support, we have to give everyone else who's had a spinal injury support. And, and we were saying, uh, uh, he's an England player. He, he was playing for, training for England. That, that's not the same as an amateur player, albeit it's a similar injury, but it's not the same. This guy is like representing, he's wearing the shirt and you're not going to support him. And it's at times like that, you just tear your hair out and just think this couldn't be handled worse if they tried. Yeah, sure. That's where you stepped in. That's where the RPA could step in and stand up to the RFU and the sort of bureaucracy that was going on up there. That's right. And I think um, just to have the... I had a very funny conversation with Adam Crozier, who was the chief exec of the FA uh, Football Association. And I think the FA Council is something like 100 strong. They talked about getting a player's voice, you know, the PFA or the player onto the... 100 strong council and apparently a couple of the council members said well well, what do they know about the game and you know therein lies the rub it's just that there's so much IP and, and I think good that that can come from the players and I think the players should have a far more central voice in the game that was my sort of parting shot when I left I just said I think you've got a lot of very good people across the game but actually you've just got to find a better structure to make and this is not just English rugby but you know the game as a whole has huge potential. We've just, I'm sure we'll talk about it, we've just witnessed an extraordinary World Cup in France and the sort of calibre and humanity of the players I thought was extraordinary. 
and that's just as a fan now. I've got no, I'm not saying I want England to go well. I was an England player, but you know, you just sort of think the way that has conducted themselves was exceptional. And yet we don't really shine a light on that as a sport. No. So, I mean, in terms of that, do you think that there is any other game in the world that has that sense of brotherhood, that sense of collectiveness, that community? Do you know, it's funny. I'm not sure there is. I'll give you a good example. We started working with the women in 2014 when they won the World Cup. You've never met a more professional group of players. And, and obviously we've been working with men since 1998. But the women and the servants players are probably the worst paid and the most professional people in terms of how they conduct themselves. And so I think that sort of the bro, the alpha, all of that stuff is there. But I think there's an absolute evolution around, and, and I particularly say around the, the women's sport. Uh, women's rugby, which has just gone from strength to strength and continues to do so in long way that last. So I think to your point about the sort of camaraderie and the togetherness and in France, they've got a lovely expression called the third half. And we used to talk about going to the game, to the clubs, and then we explain there's a pitch in the middle, but then you've got 10, 15,000, and then you go to international, you've got 80,000 watching and everything that goes on around that. And the players are the center of all of this. So it's really important to understand yeah, they are there. They are the game. And I think that brings a sort of bond with it. And the only thing I've seen that's close to it, and because I'm not working at the moment, I watched every shot. When Luke Donald stood up at the beginning of the Ryder Cup in his Duolingo best Italian and spoke beautifully, I just thought, we're going to win the Ryder Cup here. I mean, the teamship and the collectivity of that group, I just thought was exceptional. And there's a chap called Owen Eastwood who's been doing a lot of work. He's done a lot with South African cricket. He did a lot of work with the Ryder Cup team and has worked a lot in sports, did so with Stuart Lancaster, with England, about just identifying, you know, what is the purpose, what's the how or the why. Owen's written a great book called Belong. I'm yet to read it, but I know I'll love it because he's an exceptional human and, and he just talks about leaving the shirt in a better place, what have you. So I think rugby's got some big existential challenges currently around what direction it goes in. And, and I speak to a lot of players of my era, sort of 50 plus, 40 plus as well, actually. And it's trying to ensure that I think all the traits we saw at Rugby World Cup, particularly, you know, from the Portugals, the Fijians, the South Africans, the winners, New Zealand, other teams around their humility, you know, their, I guess their purpose, but, but the success, but also the fellowship at the end. There were some great scenes with, I just thought with Sam Whitelock and... Um, Aaron Smith, thank you, with their kids at the medal ceremony, just talking to South Africans about their kids. And, and, and I just thought, gosh, the humanity here is exceptional. And I think rugby does have that, that you spend 80 minutes trying to maim each other and then it becomes a sort of part of the family. And fun enough, I did, a, I did an event with Chris Robshaw recently at the Embassy Gardens over in um, Battersea. And... I was in your seat. I was asking him the questions. And I said, how did you find going to a World Cup as not as a player? He said it was interesting because he was working a lot with ambassadorship, ambassador roles and media. And he was working with the likes of John Barkley, Kelly Brown, Sam Warburton. He said, these were guys I used to want to literally kill. I want to get on the pitch and just ruin their days. And then you step away from it and you work with them and you realize they're just like me. They're just normal really lovely guys. And, and in fact, those three in particular are three exceptional human beings, or four, including Chris, who've all experienced their highs and lows through rugby. 
And I think that's something that rugby's really got to try and re-emphasize. I think golf does it incredibly well in terms of how you behave, how you respect the opposition, even in the cauldron of, of a Ryder Cup. You know, I thought there's some fabulous touches on both sides. And I think rugby needs to sort of reinforce that because the danger is that money becomes the determinant and that naturally erodes some of the values. And we were just talking off air about the refereeing, the online abuse, on field, everyone's, I mean, the England-Argentina third, fourth place playoff was like watching a football match because they were all flying in at the ref and, yeah, what about this? What about that? Look at this, look at that. And and you think it that needs to be nipped in the bud yeah. without sounding like an old fart, but you go, that's not rugby. Yeah, and then we come back to societal culture and I look at, you know, you look at the, who the winners of the Rugby World Cup have been over the last, you know, since its inception. And there is no great surprise that South Africa and New Zealand are, and you look at them, the way in which they come onto the pitch, you look, they sing the national anthem, it gives me goosebumps while saying it. And you see the, the way in which they are so together for a higher purpose. It, what it means to those countries is so deep, isn't it? Yeah, I think... Um... Here's a killer stat that not many people have thrown around, and I'm hoping it's right because I'm, I'm, I'm putting a lot of store in this. No non-national coach has ever won a Rugby or Football World Cup. So if you're not from the country that you're coaching, you've never won a Football or Rugby World Cup. So when England played South Africa in 2019, I, I was very fortunate enough to be in the ground to watch that extraordinary game against New Zealand, probably one of the best games of rugby I've ever seen, and, and the way England shut New Zealand out was incredible um, with a number of the players who were, were back at this World Cup. And I think from that perspective, you just, you know, I was blown away. You then get to the final and I haven't seen a lot of it, but the behind the scenes film that the South Africans did and Razzie Erasmus is, is crying, talking about um, the winger and BP and, and the fact that he doesn't have a family and, you know, what's he playing for? And the higher purpose there, I just, you just think, well, we're never going to get anywhere near that so you add that to what was already a very high technical level and tactical level that they had and similarly with New Zealand I mean New Zealand in this World Cup had two or three chances to win that final and that will probably haunt them forever and a day even with Sam Kane leaving the field but I do think that sort of higher purpose and the cause is something that's really extraordinary around South Africa and to a lesser extent New Zealand but you know you'd say and my old mate Lawrence Delalio is off, off, you know, they, they'd won three each going into this World Cup. Everyone had sort of written them off thinking it was going to be a Northern Hemisphere sort of domination. And, and, and as it was, it was only England who no one fancied going into the tournament um, who came third. So... Um, By luck of the draw. Well, but I sort of, I push back a bit on that. It is what it is, right? And they're only playing what they've been given. So, and, and good luck to them. And, and actually, I thought I was lucky enough to be in Paris for the semi-final and I thought they were going to do it 72 minutes and I thought actually do you know what this is going to happen I don't know what would happen in the final if they got through but they always had a game and I thought there was some a number of key things I thought the fact that Dan Cole and Joe Marler came on and almost exercised some of the demons of 2019 was and I thought they were magnificent I thought the whole team were magnificent against South Africa but South Africa just always find a way of winning which is and again that might come back to the sort of the higher purpose and, and, and what it's all about. Never say die. Attitude, well, you know, three points to win a World Cup in three weekends. I mean, and they definitely did it the hard way. 
And I was lucky enough to be at the um, Qatar Airways Cup between South Africa and New Zealand uh, in August, Friday night, bank holiday weekend, 81,000 people at, at Twickenham. So impressive by the promoters of that game, to put it mildly. And Sir Khaleesi came on to speak at the end. And there were, there were obviously the big side, I think Earlsfield had emptied so all the South Africans were in, were in, uh, were in the stadium. <laughs> and he spoke and I said to someone, I said, you know, I've not seen anything like that probably since Mandela in terms of the impact he had and the sort of, the way he captured the imagination. And then to see him, I, I mean, I, talk about a statesman, I just thought he's talking about um, the fly half, whose name I can't remember, who, who got yanked after 30 minutes to be replaced by Pollard. Talked about the French team going out and what an extraordinary side they were. He was obviously in touch with Tom Curry when that whole racism thing blew up after the um, semi-final. You know, for someone to have the EQ and the leadership to actually take a step back and not make it all about himself, I just thought was extraordinary. And he is clearly an exceptional human being. Yeah, he's extraordinary. You know, I said to you before we started, when they walked out for the final and I just, you looked at the captains and there's nothing against Sam Kane, but it's just like you looked at the way in which they were carrying themselves. Yeah. I just had this sixth sense. I was just like, it's South Africa's day. Yeah. It's just that he, yeah. if you lead with that kind of freedom, freedom of self, freedom of expression, yeah. freedom of just being very happy in his own skin. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, extraordinary human. And do you know, there's a great parallel there. Ben Ryan, the former England Sevens and then the successful Fiji Sevens coach, wrote a brilliant book called Seven Seven. Uh, great Britain, by hook or by crook, got to the final against Fiji in... 2016 at the Rio Olympics. It's the first time rugby had come back in the Olympics since 1924. So the little known fact, the Americans were the reigning Olympic rugby champions until Fiji took over in um, 2016. Ben Ryan was saying that before the final, Simon Amor, who's England, a GB coach, was out there laying out grids and they were doing lots of sort of short passing to passing. And he said, and as the Fijians ran out, a couple of them were piggybacking their mates and they were like laughing and running onto the field, paraphrasing, but just said, I realized then that they were in this state of flow and they were just so in the moment and so excited to enjoy what was going to be a defining moment in Fijian rugby history. The first time they've ever got a medal at the World, at, at the Olympics. And obviously it was a gold and they backed it up again four years later. He just said, you know, my work's done here because these guys are, are just in this extraordinary state and they, I mean, they, they put 40 points on GB in the first half. I mean, it, it was a procession. And, you know, there's nothing, for, for me, there's nothing better, sevens or fifteens, but sevens in particular, when you watch Fiji go and just having played against them, you just think, oh my God, this is a nightmare. Blow the whistle, ref. Because they're just, they, everything sticks. They just do things that are extraordinary. And again, they were like one or two passes from not from getting into a semi-final at this World Cup as well. So, you know, Simon Rallowey did an extraordinary job there with Glenn Jackson and uh, Daryl Gibson and the guys there. So, you know that with the right sort of investment and obviously the Drua and the Super Rugby has done great things for, for Fiji. So, yeah, you, you hope that, that journey can continue for them. So, just moving on a little bit to how players are feeling and treated and, and, and their experiences after the game, because obviously we've talked about how high those experiences can be, for example, yeah, Khaleesi, 
you know, getting two World Cups and becoming incredibly famous and incredibly well known. I mean, that's really at the, at the pinnacle. But we've got, and then you sort of work down to guys who have played international and then there's guys who have played club. But all this time, they've had this sense of brotherhood. They've had this sense of, of men around them, maybe for five years, maybe for 15 years. But then what? It's a bit like for the for us mere mortals leaving school at 18. Like we were surrounded by a bunch of guys and then it was just like into the big world and you're like, okay, I have not been prepared for this. And so I've got two guys who are in our privileged man community, uh, both have played some premiership rugby. And I just thought I'd just read out their experiences of what it was like when they left the game and then sort of just go from there. Mark Locke, who's ex-Wasps, he said uh, emotionally, it was the hardest period of my life. I was 31 and had just spent the last 12 years doing something I loved, something that I was good at, something that gave me structure, direction and purpose, something that people respected me for. I then went into an office environment with no experience, knowledge or respect or understanding of the job I was there to do. Suddenly, everything I'd achieved as a rugby player counted for very little. On several occasions, I get home from work and burst into tears. It was an incredibly tough time for me and my wife. So that was Mark who played for Wasps in the beginning of the 2000s. And then Kent Bray, who's ex-Harlequins, and was playing, I think, at the beginning of the, the, or through the 90s. And uh, Kent says, I was happy to leave rugby. I was sick of the pain of injuries and could not face another pre-season flogging. (laughs) But in the ensuing months and years I missed the game big time the feelings are impossible to replace it's about finding acceptance and moving forward but for me it was incredibly difficult I guess they're two very eloquent men yeah and in in your experience in your personal experience does that ring true and also can you just speak to a little bit about other men who have experienced the highs of the rugby game and then potentially how difficult the transition has been. And look, you could cut and paste those for pretty much every player who leaves professional sport because you're probably less so with Kent because he played in the sort of amateur to professional and Mark was very much part of that highly successful WASP team. When he played, I think you're sort of almost institutionalised in this environment where, you know, you're turning up with force of your mates to work every day and... Yes, let's say sort of HR, other regulatory frameworks aren't probably in place that means you get away with things that you wouldn't do in a normal office environment around what you say, how you say it. And, and I think that's obviously, that's changing. But that would be a consistent emotional outcome for, for I think everyone who, who's played at, at elite level sports. And we dealt with, we, well, obviously we've probably, there's, I know, 30 to 40 players who would either retire or get cut from a contract every year. And that number could be higher, actually. So how do you sort of help those players around all the things that we know are coming? So the thing that sort of I always found interesting around the Players Association, it it became increasingly thankless because people would expect more and more and more. And I get that because you've got a short career and you want to optimize your earnings, you want to But it got to a point where it was like, well, can you not just get me a job? Can you not just sort that out for me? And you'd be like, no, no, that's either your agent's job or that's your job. You've got to own, you've got to be responsible for what you're doing now. And hey, by the way, you will definitely retire 
unless you're Simon Shaw and play to your 52 or whatever he did, <laughs> you know, you will definitely retire in the next X years. So you've got to put the yards in now. And, and we know that statistically that first two years post-retirement is the darkest in anyone's time. I went through it and for me, it was a bit like a bereavement. You know, you're sort of there going, hey, I was this 25-year-old, you know, young buck. I played for England. Will and Jerry were on the way out. This was my time, you know, that's where I'm going to get to. And suddenly you're sort of hobbling around after, I think I had 13 operations ultimately. And you're hobbling around watching other players who you probably don't think are as good as you or having you think, mm, that should be me. And I think trying to process that was very difficult. Mm -hmm. So it was like a bereavement and it was like a part of me died when I had to stop playing. And I think that's similar to a lot of people because unless they've got something to go into seamlessly, which rarely happens. Yeah. And ironically, the people who really transition well, a lot of them are overseas players because they'll come in, they'll say, hey, do you know what? I'm going to England for three years or four years and I'm going to absolutely make the most of that opportunity because I'm probably going to go back to New Zealand, Australia, South Africa after that. So I'm going to make the most of it. A lot of the younger England players would just be like, well, I'm going to just keep playing rugby. And then we've seen the calamitous events of the last year with three professional clubs going bust in England. You know, my former club, was London Irish and, and, and Worcester. So suddenly you've got not just the players, you've got the whole club staff. It must be three, 400 people who are out of jobs. And then they're all in this sort of panic mode. So I think the key is to understand that you will... A, you have to work again, but B, you can do an awful lot whilst you're being paid by someone else to play rugby to go and explore other things. But you're still never going to get over the fact that you've probably peaked in terms of possibly financial, certainly emotional, belonging and being part of something that's very special. Obviously, a very few players go into coaching, even fewer go into media. So it's about trying to find something else in your life that is a passion so you that famous, you, know, you never have to work another day in your life. Yeah. And that was sort of something I did with the RPA. You know, I, I felt incredibly privileged to be doing that purposeful role and, and doing it very well for a number of years. But I think you've just, and that ability just to open up and talk about it is probably at the heart of all of this. And, and how do you share what are, you know, I mean, Lockie talks about going home and crying and, you know, I have... And, and I know of, and I have done it, you frequently just think, God, what have I become now? Who am I now? So um, that's um, pretty sort of jarring because, you know, as you say, you've been on this pedestal for such a long time and then suddenly you get yanked off so someone else can go on that pedestal and, you know, it's um, very tough, yeah. Very hard. I mean, you said the importance of sharing experiences and, and sharing and talking about it afterwards. Did the RPA have anything in place or do they have anything in place that is there for ex ex players yeah well we have counseling services and we had sorry i used the but, but we we put in place counseling services for players and i think people are far more aware of mental health now as a an illness than ever before so that so we we put programs in place for the players we now have a james bailey who's a sort of former player transition Manager James himself, you know, outstanding rugby player, but went into a great coaching role with England Sevens and is just a, a beautiful human. And so he's there. But ideally, you just want more resource. 
and 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 this is it. And it's just the the fact that people will fall through the net. People will turn to there'll be addictions around leaving the game, around getting highs, be that drink, drugs, whatever it is, gambling. So how do you sort of counter that in a good way? And we we had a number of counsellors coming in and talking about addictions and, you know, this is coming down the track. But I think sometimes just getting players back together to share their experiences in a safe environment is probably the most important thing and probably rarely happens because people get busy there, you know, families, new jobs. Sometimes I think rugby clubs can be seen as a, what's the right word? It's almost like, you just dread going back into that environment because you knew what it meant to you. But then you go back and you're the former player who's just hanging around like a bad smell. And it's sort of belittling in, in many ways. And, and, and I saw it a lot when I played. My worst thing ever was to go back, if I was at an England game, and you'd be at the sort of dinners after the game where the teams would come in. And it was just, there are a lot of very good people who do a lot of good volunteering work in, in rugby and they're rightly rewarded at these dinners but it was just for me as a former player and a former England player just deeply uncomfortable so I think sometimes it's just about finding the right environment for those players to get together and just share their experiences and we we, we did some great workshops for players um, leaving the game that were highly emotional and players would talk about some of the decisions that they almost made that almost ended their lives and I think it's then that you understand the gravity of what you're dealing with and the importance of the the sort of network to support and put an arm around these players yeah I mean I've talked about this before in other podcasts but I mean that was my experience as this loneliness of thought this isolation not of people I was surrounded by people I was never alone I was very lonely which drove my head going into a complete tailspin which was in hindsight, and you know, we're now talking over 10 years ago, and a lot has changed in those 10 years. In hindsight, was actually avoidable. Mm. I didn't need to get to that point mm. if I had known about men's groups, if I had known about men's work, if I had known that there were it wasn't going to be the end of the world if I actually spoke truthfully and honestly yeah. about my experience. In fact, not just be the end of the world, it would be the start of a new one. And that's where I think when I'm Talking to men who about what I do, about what the privileged man does, it's like, oh, that sounds scary. I'm just like, well, let's just flip this one on its head. Is it scary to come and talk about what's going on for you truthfully, or is it more scary to be alone with those thoughts? And it's true, and I, I think that the key is how do you sort of create an environment where people can really open up and not necessarily around drink, so how can you create an environment whereby it's authentic? But, I, you know, I always said when we, we, so I obviously ran the English Players Association, but then I was involved with the International Rugby Players, which is the sort of collective of all the player associations around the world. And we'd get together once a year around a game or a conference and just catch up. And, I, and I'd always say that there'd be a light bulb moment at one of those conferences where someone, Rob Nickel in New Zealand or... Simon Keogh in, in Ireland would say something that they're doing in Ireland and I'd go, God, that would work so well in England, right? Yeah. Okay, let's let's do that. Simon, how does this work? What yeah, and you speak to Richard Bevan at the, you know, the Cricketers Association or the league managers and, and there'd be a forum around which and I think those light bulb moments apply equally to players around moving from, hey, 
can you get me a job to, do you know what, I'm really interested in X, Y, and Z. And, and there are so many positive stories about rugby players going on and doing things. And I mean, it sort of led to Saracens getting their wrist slap and a, a, a substantial fine. But the, okay, the method was all wrong and, and the sort of breaking of the rules was, was anathema to what rugby's all about. But I think the intent to help players with their businesses actually, yeah, who were actually running businesses, I'm thinking of, you know, Brad Barrett and Jamie George and all these people who have gone on and run successful businesses for themselves. So when they do finish, they can move into that seamlessly. I think that's an incredibly powerful thing. The method was all wrong, but I think actually that the, the, the principle makes a lot of sense. So trying to just help players, and, and rugby is very lucky. You know, there's a lot of successful people out there who played the game, love the game. So that sort of, that IP sits there. It's how do you actually help the players to move into that instead of, can you give me a job? Can you pay me a lot of money? You know, can I sort of do a lot of client entertainment? And is that how it works? And actually it's not because there's no longevity within that. It's about finding that purpose again and saying, okay, what am I good at? What do I enjoy? What gets me out of bed in the morning? Because rugby did that for a number of years. And and then pursuing that as a as a relevant and realistic path. And and learning to express that, right? Learning to be able to speak in an honest and vulnerable way is not necessarily something that is if you I guess you're a professional rugby player and you leave school at 18 and then you move into the professional ranks and you end up being 31, a bit like Mark. Then how do you express actually at age 31 that what you want when you actually don't necessarily know. So being able to learn how to express yourself actually then helps multiple different conversations and opens all sorts of doors, professional doors, corporate doors, entrepreneurial doors. So it all, I mean, that's where I would, that's the angle I would come at it from is that, you know, emotion, having a a certain amount of awareness around your emotions will put motion in place. Not necessarily the other way. It doesn't really work the other way around. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think when you look at the the vulnerability piece around, I, I think sports was an interesting environment because, you know, you come to sport as you might be the best in your school and you move up a level and then you think, oh, actually, I cut the mustard here. And then you go into, and then you move into an academy and then you move up the ranks in the club. In many ways, and th- there were some great, I mean, one of the greatest losses to English rugby was a back row called Tom Reese, who was at Wasps and played a few caps, retired young, probably younger than me, now training, may even have qualified as a doctor. And just, he was part of that sort of James Haskell era. Slightly different to James. But, you know, they, they, they were the sort of, the, the, you know, the young guns coming through the whole um, Wasps Academy system. And Tom talked a lot. We got him into Academy induction day, so we just talked to the first group of players and we had Jack Noel, we had Makovinopola, Tom Reese, Dylan Hartley's been there. You know, just saying, hey, do you know what, you sort of come from a, you're the kingpin at school, you get in the academy and you realise, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm okay here, but you've just got to work very hard. And do you know what, you probably won't get many chances, particularly if you're a forward. As a back, you probably will get chances quicker because of the sort of nature of the game. But it's just that you've got to just keep applying yourself. You've got to keep working hard and not just sort of giving in and thinking, actually, I, I can't cut this. Because then when you come through at the other end, yeah, the, the, the merits will be unbelievable. But I think it's about 
sharing that sort of experience because I think in, in rugby you tend to sort of soak things up so Tom was always great you'd tell him something it, it would go in not just on the pitch but off it and then you just try and hoard everything to yourself and, and you just try and keep everything to yourself and actually I think the most successful teams culturally and I, I look again at New Zealand and South Africa is they're probably sharing more than they've ever learned and I remember Jason Leonard in the 97 infamous Lions tour to South Africa. He went out there as first choice. I'm going to say he's a tight head, but I have never understood front row play. And I'm quite proud of that, even at the age of 53. He plays prop. And I think Paul Wallace sort of superseded him as, as the number one pick. And everyone on that tour said that Jason was brilliant because he just sort of started talking about and helping and advising and coaching and you know just trying to impart knowledge because the bigger goal was to beat South Africa, who were the reigning world champions in 95 and 97. So, you know, again, you go back to this purpose thing. And I mean, Jason, anyone who's met him or probably had a drink with him, he is one of the nicest men in world rugby and one of the hardest men, like sort of dad strength. But he, he saw something bigger than him. And, and I think that's one of the challenges, particularly as game gets more rarefied and is how do you actually end up sharing your experiences rather than sort of keeping them all to yourself? Um, it takes a lot of bravery, takes a lot of courage, takes a loving community, family, friends around and, um, you know, you can see in the ways in which that, you know, the, who's got, dare I say it, the most love around them. Yeah, and a good environment. And, and I, incredibly lucky Phil talks about it when he was on, podcast but you know we've got a in close not only emotionally geographically we all live quite near each other we see each other a lot and I could not have gotten through the several operations I had the reconstructions the re-reconstructions ad nauseum without the love of my family and friends you know the, the perspective I've got since I've stepped away from doing my role at the RPA around you know, that precious time with family and friends has been priceless for me. I'm unmarried, I, you know, I'm 53, don't have children. And I've just had this extraordinary year away from working in rugby where I've probably just recalibrated quite a lot. And I probably didn't realize quite how much the RPA had taken out of me in terms of the thanklessness of it toward the, the end of it and the people are dealing with. But you just... Having stepped away, I, I have daily gratitude, whether it's on a, a yoga mat, a breathwork session, or just being around people I want to be with, that I've got this time that I probably never thought I'd have them. Really beautifully put. <laughs> really beautifully put. So, I mean, in terms of just wrapping up, in terms of Damien Hopley 2.0, or maybe 3.0, <laughs> 3 where's the future for you? Good question. I, I always said I'd have this... You know, I ran my path with, with the RPA. I'm incredibly proud of what I and all of my colleagues did there. Here's a full circle moment. I collected an MBE for my services to rugby in 2021. Quite a nice story. Because it was COVID, you're only allowed one person in there. Massive dilemma. So, of course, mum got the nod. So I said, mum, you know, we're going to um, get your hat ready. We're going to Windsor Castle. And she was like, oh, have you, have you met someone? <laughs> <laughs> finally <laughs> I said even better we're going to go meet a royal anyway we uh, called up the I'm probably going to get my MB stripped away for this but anyway I called up the office and I said listen my poor mum is quite um, 
immobile? Would it be okay if dad comes and um, looks after? And they said, no, you're only actually allowed one. It's COVID rules, sorry. So, nice effort. um, Yeah. So, as ever in life, don't give up after the first refusal. So, I then called up on the Monday of the um, investiture. And I said, listen, mum had a terrible fall this weekend. Um, Would it be okay if dad just comes in the car and just sits with her? And they said, yeah, he can't come in, but that's fine. No problem. So dad was like, what should I do? Uh, What should I wear? I said, well, best suit. He said, I'll wear my services tie. I said, yeah, great idea. So we get to the gates of Windsor Castle. It's a big day. I even shaved. It was a big, big day. You know, very excited. So we got there. Everyone's looking smart. And... We go up and the, and the WPC comes up. She says, oh, you've got two in the car. You're going to have one. I said, oh, yeah, I know that. But I did call ahead and mum's had a fall. And, and mum is in a chair, so she's not that mobile. She said, I have to get confirmation from my uh, um, supervisor. So he comes over, buzz down the window. I'm about to go into a big spiel. He looks at my dad's tie. So it's, oh, Royal Signals, sir. Wonderful regiment. So immediately I'm thinking the investiture gods are smiling on us. Long story short, we go in. They both came in. They both saw me get my MBE, which was um, pretty cool. And um, Princess Anne was the, uh, excuse me. Princess Anne was um, handing out the MBEs. Oh, the gongs. And, um, and she's, as someone once said, she's a proper royal. And she just said, you know, congratulations, your life obviously took a, a, a wrong turn. I said, you know, the last time we met Your Majesty was when you handed us the Melrose Cup in 1993 at Edinburgh. And she said, gosh, you're right. And, you know, and I, and I just think about that, that time. So sorry, I just got a bit emotional there, but my parents are pretty cool. And, um, so, yeah. So what next? I've become increasingly aware of the, the universe and the, the extraordinary way that things get served up. And as I said, I, I sort of, I pray regularly, I practice on the yoga mat. I, I do a lot of breath work with the brilliant breath pod on Instagram. Stuart Sandman, if you haven't followed him, do it. He is exceptional. So I'm just looking at a few things in sport. Um, I'm fortunate that I'm, for whatever reason, I'm pretty well connected and even more remarkably quite well liked. So a lot of people have sort of approached me and said, would you be interested in X, Y, and Z? So I think I'm just going to see, you know, how this year goes. I'm, I'm lucky enough to still be commentating at the Dubai Sevens, which has been going on for the last 22 years. And that beat has been a brilliant part of my life. And again, thank the good Lord that that is still there and seeing lots of great mates out there. So I loved my role. I love rugby. I love sports. I love what sport delivers, whether it's hope, whether it's camaraderie and the enjoyment, the third half that I, that I touched on earlier is as people who know me know I'm a social beast and I, and I love being around people and it really nourishes me to be around good people. So I will move back into sport in some capacity. I'm starting to talk to headhunters, starting to talk to other people, and um, we'll see. But I'm sort of terrified and excited. But, you know, your 53, you know, career break, I'm like, it's been, as I said, it's been an exceptional year. But I also know I've got an awful lot to give, and I've got a great track record 
I've started something from nothing, purely driven by passion, purpose, wanting to make the sport better than the one that I was involved in, which I've done, and the whole RPA team continues to do. So we'll see. It's actually very exciting as to what's coming down the track. Yeah, absolutely. Well, whoever has you, it's very lucky. You're very kind. And um, thank you so much for coming on and being honest and vulnerable and speaking truthfully. And yeah, it's been a great pleasure. Been a real pleasure. I've enjoyed that thoroughly. So thank you for joining me, Pete Hunt, on the Privileged Man podcast. If you're interested in joining our exclusive community for men, please visit the website, theprivilegedman.com, for more details. Thank you.